Today, we're going to be reading a news article about somebody who started a business, did everything right, yet still somehow managed to fail. And we're going to see if their story holds up. Stay tuned. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Deal Making, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things, I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like and be sure to hit subscribe, and let's get to it. Are you thinking of growing your business or beginning a journey into entrepreneurship? Take a shortcut to success by buying an existing and profitable business the right way. Visit businessbuyeradvantage.com and learn more about my online training, group coaching, and consulting services designed to help you win. So I'd like to start by giving a big warm shout out to Jeanette in Toronto, who had sent me an email with a link to this article. And, uh, and, and boy, is it a good one. You're going to have a lot of fun here with me today. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to share my screen. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this article for everyone. And as we go through the article, I'm going to stop and I'm going to do some math and I'm going to do some research. Uh, and, and we're just going to piece together whether some of the things in this article seem to make sense or not. Um, and, and so the the article was written by a fellow named Rob. Um, I'm going to try to pronounce that as Cernic, uh, but please forgive me if, I, if I've gotten that wrong. Um, and the it's an opinion piece, first of all. Um, and the title of the article is, I started a business, I did everything right, and I still failed. Okay, And I want to explore this because there are, quite frankly, a ton of things in this article that I have run into over and over again in my career when meeting with business owners who are having trouble with their business or maybe wanted to sell a business. Um, and I think it's just a great learning opportunity, not for the agenda that uh, Mr. Cernick has, but for the purposes of all of us on this channel, where we have conversations about business and running businesses and buying and selling businesses, et cetera. And we're going to get into his agenda too, as we go through this article. And of course, this was published in the Globe and Mail, uh, which is, uh, uh, believe their tagline is Canada's national newspaper. Uh, and uh, if you enjoy this article, I see they've got a special there. You can subscribe for $1.99 for 52 weeks. So let's get through this. And there's a, a picture of some pillows and things in a window. This was the a picture of the, uh, it's not his store. That's what I wanted to point out. So in this article, he talks about a home decor store. And it it's a story of his store that he owned back almost 10 years ago. It's not that picture. So that's a different picture. Um, and it says that this... Uh, He's a contributing columnist for the Globe and Mail. And so let's get into Rob's story. My first few weeks of boutique ownership were financially underwhelming, but I had high hopes Boxing Day would turn my fortunes around. I was used to customers rushing the doors of Pier 1 Imports, where I'd previously worked, to snap up discounted housewares with abandon. Now that I owned a home decor store called Habitat in Cornwall, Ontario, the profit would be mine. Hopefully, enough would pass my till to correct course. 
So for those of you that don't know, Pier One Imports, uh, there's one here in town. Um, it's a it's a home decor store where you can get some vases and maybe some uh, dinnerware and some pillows and uh, maybe a few furnishings, things of that nature uh, that you might use to decorate your house, something pretty to hang on a wall, that, that sort of thing. So then Rob goes on to say, instead, on December 26, 2013, it was a gray, snowy day when the shoppers who bothered to brave the chill headed to chain stores on the city's fringes or the decaying mall down the street. I spent the day almost alone in my shop, pondering if I really knew what I had gotten into. I hadn't become an entrepreneur as a flight of fancy. I'd planned for five years. This included working for several retailers to gain experience, creating a business plan and sales forecasts, both deemed realistic enough to secure funding and taking uh, taking probing inventories of my appetites for hard work and risk. Still ticking these boxes was not enough to prepare me, okay? So I find this all very interesting because here's, here's what I'm going to interpret from this. Number one, he spent a couple of years working in this sector in the retail stores, so what kind of experience would that give you? It would certainly give you customer service experience. It might give you an experience as to what sort of products would be in demand, for example, right? Um, but he opened a brand new store and he did so by creating a business plan, which he used to get a loan, okay? So I just want to paint the picture as far as the riskiness of this operation. So he created a new store retail outlet in a place that didn't have one before that was selling these types of products and services. So he had the burden of creating entirely new uh, behavioral pathways for retail consumers to go down. People who were not used to going to his location to find this kind of stuff, they had to go there. Additionally, he had the burden of this financial uh, risk because he borrowed money and he had to make a debt payment. And, he, and he's going to mention this a little bit later as well. And he's operating from a lease location. So he's got some overhead expenses right from the get-go. And so this is the typical trap of starting a business is that you load up with a bunch of overhead burdens uh, and then you have to race to this break-even point. Uh, and the problem, of course, is that we don't know where that break-even point is going to be or even if you're going to reach it, uh, which is, <clears throat> I mean, this is why I tell people to buy a business instead of starting one. So let's let's move a little bit further into this article. So he says, boosters of entrepreneurship tout going into business for oneself as the great equalizer, a career path anyone with enough gumption and willingness to succeed can thrive in. Admittedly, this was part of its allure to me. I could forego a traditional nine to five job and blaze my own trail alongside like-minded scrappy mom and pop businesses. That's what articles and podcasts I took in online and the case studies I read in university prepared me for. Okay. So he's all psyched up to be a business owner. Instead of going to a nine to five, he's going to spend his day fighting in the trenches of entrepreneurship. Okay. The, the, the mindset stuff is important. Okay. Let me keep reading. What's missing from the equation are realistic discussions of money and privilege and how those lead some entrepreneurs to have wildly unique experiences, even though they may follow similar paths. Okay, interesting. And this is where the first appearance of this P word appears, privilege, okay? And, and we're, gonna, we're gonna touch on that again. So let me continue reading. As I tried to improve my fortunes, I found my store owning peers and I took different approaches to revenue generation. Mine, thanks to 
uh, top of budget monthly rent, loan payment and startup costs. So again, he's talking about his overhead burden was in a state of heightened urgency. Yeah, he had to hustle to get sales in, okay? My constant refrain was a line from a Coolio song, if you don't work, then you don't eat. Yup, agree. My counterparts took more relaxed attitudes. When I tried rallying the troops to open on Sunday afternoons when our target customers were off work, one prominent store owner quickly popped my thought balloon. They said opening for $300 in sales wasn't worth the effort. Interesting. Though they grasped that number from midair, four Sundays at that rate would generate my monthly rent for Habitat. This person had the luxury of owning their location outright, so it was easy to take that afternoon off. So, so let's, let's explore this because there are a bunch of crumbs in this paragraph that we can follow to build out um, a better understanding of the reality of Rob's situation. So first of all, he's talking about other people having greater resources. And he in particular points out this other store owner who happened to own the real estate that they're located in. Now, if you've been on my channel for, for any degree of time, you will know that uh, whether you own property or not, you still need to get a certain rate of return from the real estate. But there are plenty of what I refer to as zombie businesses where you know, the business may not be making any money, but because they own the real estate, they don't pay any rent, they're still able to remain open, right? Um, that doesn't make them successful businesses. It just means that the capital invested in the real estate is subsidizing a poorly operating business, right? And so what is a, a, a recurring theme in this article is that there are people that can run businesses that don't seem to have the same challenges of success, according uh, to the author. In reality, what we're reading is that there are people that enjoy this entrepreneur lifestyle, and that is different from being a successful business owner. We're going to get into it here as, as we move through the article, but I want to I draw your attention to this $300 in sales number. So what he says is that if I had four Sunday afternoons uh, with $300 in sales, it would generate my rent. So I'm going to draw from that that his rent is $1,200 a month. Okay. So I did some research and, you know, I looked up, um, this is from the government of Canada. This is industry Canada, uh, statistics drawn from tax return information. And, uh, for those of you in the States, if you've ever looked up RMA risk management associates information, uh, based on tax returns, it's very similar. Just, this is for Canada. The, the subject of the article is in Ontario. And so what I did is I searched for Ontario corporations in NAICS code 4491, which is furniture, floor covering, window treatment, and other home furnishing retailers. It was, it was the, the narrowest industry sector I was able to do specifically for this kind of business. And so this data is presented all in percentages, but um, I want to draw your attention to this. So, so there are 2,557 corporations in Ontario in this category of retail. And the lowest one had sales of $30,000 in a year. And this is for what year? This is for 2022. And then the highest revenue uh, was $5 million, okay? And then they break this into quartiles. So um, the low value bottom quartile um, that had sales between 30 and 170,000 a year. The lower middle quartile had sales between 170 and 480,000 a year. 
and the upper middle had sales between 480 and 1. Point, almost 1.3 million, okay? And then within them, all of these are percentages. So percentage of revenue. So um, cost of sales, direct expenses, uh, including purchases, you'll see that in the bottom quartile, it's 40% uh, in the lower middle quartile, it's 49%. So <clears throat> what does that mean? It means that if I sell something for $100, it costs me $49, okay? So let's go over here to the calculator. So if we assume $300 on a Sunday afternoon, and we um, then say that there's a 49% cost of goods sold, so the converse of that would be 50.7% of profit. So times 50.7. No, I did that wrong. So cancel. So 300 times 0.57. So that's $152.1 of gross profit on the $300 of sales. Okay, so why am I doing this math? Well, I'm, I'm trying to highlight how the author doesn't really understand business because he could sell $300 worth of goods on four Sunday afternoons to raise $1,200, but he's not actually making enough money to cover his rent by doing that, right? So on each Sunday afternoon, he's only making a gross profit after direct cost of $152 on the $300 in revenue. So the next question is, what's your time worth, right? So if we assume that Sunday afternoon is noon to five, that's five hours. And if we assume that a retail store clerk's time is worth $20 an hour, all costs included, including payroll taxes, government pension contributions, employment, I guess employment benefits may not apply to an owner, but let's say it's $20. So that's $100 in labor. So minus 100, right? So now what we're seeing is the $300 in sales really only contributes $52 to all of the other overheads of the business, right? After the, the labor and the cost of the items sold have been calculated. So, so let me flip back to that article. Right. So um, they said opening for 300 in sales wasn't worth the effort. Yeah, I would totally agree. Like he's talking to experienced longtime shopkeepers who have a much better understanding of what their finances and their numbers are. Right. Versus versus uh, what the author is saying. And he wants to blame the fact that they are wealthier, that they own their own real estate. Well, you know, Part of the reason why that person probably owns their own real estate is because they're running a business that is consistently more profitable. Okay. So let me, let me keep going through the article here. Another time I heard from a disappointed customer that a fellow new business closed early on a sunny Saturday. I learned later from the owner that they were unwilling to sacrifice the pleasant weather for work, posted hours or not. I once believed the entrepreneurial growth mindset that hunger to maximize income was not only part of a business owner's DNA, but also a driving force behind their vocation. Realizing it wasn't an un, it, it, realizing it wasn't was unmooring. Where I'd once imagined having allies to drum up business with, sharing marketing costs and efforts, I learned quickly that many didn't feel it was worth their while. Okay, so again, 
this business owner, if they're sitting there on a sunny Saturday afternoon and the weather's gorgeous and there's no customers coming in, um, yeah, maybe they thought it was a better idea to close the doors and to go do something else, right? My guess is that their business wasn't very successful either. How do I know? Because the owner was there on a Saturday, right? Like, think about it. If it was a thriving, successful, profitable business, the teenage store clerk who goes to high school would be there on a Saturday, not the owner, right? The owner would have enjoyed the whole day off, right? So, so let's, let's, let's keep on going because again, we're going to talk about some more interesting stuff. A local executive once described what I was witnessing as the difference between people who build businesses and those who run companies as hobbies. Yeah, 100% accurate, right? And I talk about this all the time. If you have a business and your seller's discretionary earnings is less than the fair market value of what you'd be paid doing what you do for another company, then you are not running a business, you're running a hobby, right? And, and the author here has bumped into this reality. This distinction, back to the article, this distinction hadn't come up before and illuminated an inconvenient truth. Profit alone doesn't keep some companies afloat. That's only true if you believe everyone has the same chance at being an entrepreneur. Most people can develop the aptitudes over time or certain skill sets to poise themselves for success. But at the end of the day, these aren't the most important factors in remaining a going concern. Uh, okay, so now he's going to tell us what are the important factors in remaining uh, uh, as a going concern. So he's going to tell us, and then we're going to get my opinion. There are a variety of privileges. Again, here's the P word, privileges, not apparent at first blush but which leads some entrepreneurs to success that those with less wealth connections or dissimilar backgrounds can't duplicate. For some, it's benefits stemming from being legacy businesses with outsized reputations, deep-rooted customer bases, and long-term credit terms with suppliers. Some may enjoy paid-off student loans, mortgages, and vehicles. Others benefit from family bailouts or high-earning partners who can keep the household lifestyle afloat even if the business suffers. For others still, it's an inability to draw, it's an ability to draw from home equity, investments, or retirement savings when emergencies arise instead of having to consider folding. Nothing about this is equal, but I hadn't ever considered how it might affect my fate. Boy, this is a loaded paragraph. We're gonna have to go back and we're gonna have to tap into each one of these comments because there's a there's a lot here that he is pushing out as far as ideas that uh, I think we need to address. So the benefits, for, so he says, here's an advantage. The benefits stemming from legacy businesses, outsized reputations, deep-rooted customer bases, long-term credit terms with suppliers. Okay, all of this stuff describes the advantages of it being an existing business versus a startup. Every newly started business faces these kinds of problems that they have to create awareness in the marketplace. They have to attract people to them that don't know they exist et cetera, et cetera. This is why the failure rate for new business startups is like 90%, right? That this fact was certainly public knowledge when he decided to start a business, right? But, but he got into this whole exuberant mentality through the content he was consuming, right? That made him believe that if he just had an idea, created a business plan that would satisfy a lender and he got a loan that everything would just work out okay. And, and we know, especially on this channel, that's not true. 
So for this first thing here about the legacy business advantages, obviously the solution is not to start a business, it's to buy one, right? And it's easy for me to say, because that's what I preach and this is what I sell and how I make money by helping people do that. But let's get into these other ones. Some may enjoy paid off student loans, mortgages, and vehicles. Okay, so does this really have to do with business success or not, right? What this really has to do with is paying yourself a fair wage for the work you do in the business you own, right? And so if you are getting into a business, you need to recognize the value of your own labor because quite frankly, student loans, mortgages, and vehicles for your own private vehicle and your own student loan, these are all things that have to come out of your personal cash flow. And so if you get into a business where the management in that industry is typically paid, you know, 80 grand a year, you need to show how you're going to be able to pay yourself that 80 grand a year. And that 80 grand a year should be enough to take care of these things, right? Your home mortgage, your home, your personal car and your student loans, right? So he's, he's conflating between personal budget and this small business thing. He's got it all mashed together. And, and I think it's because he fell for what I will call the uh, entrepreneurial or startup lifestyle kind of uh, idea that there's a certain lifestyle or, or way that you live when you're a business owner. Um, and he's confusing it with actually being a successful entrepreneur that executes on a business plan to have a profitable business. Let's keep going. Others benefit from family bailouts, high earning partners who can keep the household lifestyle afloat if the business suffers, and, and then other people can draw from home equity investments or retirement savings when emergencies arise. Th these are not privileges that help businesses succeed. All these are, are personal um, assets that some people can choose to liquidate to finance losses in crappy businesses, right? And I'm very sad to say that I've met many people who've been in crappy businesses and instead of recognizing when they needed to close the doors on those businesses, they have like basically emptied out their piggy bank into these unprofitable businesses to try to keep them alive with this hope that time was going to fix things, that they would eventually reach that break even point and be able to make some money. Um, but that's not that these advantages, as he calls them, these privileges, they're not privileges that give you success in business. They just help you stay in purgatory longer. They help you finance losses of a bad business longer. And to me, that's not an advantage. Um, when you finally realize you have a crappy business, you want to kill it. It's not an asset. It's a liability. Let me, uh, let me continue with the article. A well-known academic paper, which I only learned of after opening my business, suggested that such privilege, again, the P word, leads people to entrepreneurship in the first place. The probability of self-employment depends positively upon whether the individual ever received an inheritance or gift. So, you know, what is he trying to do here? What, what is the purpose of this article? Um, I'm going to hold that for a second. Um, so the authors of that report wrote uh, in the article called What Makes an Entrepreneur? And he says, I had neither of these things, but this knowledge made me look at my peers differently and soften the blow of what was to come. Habitat barely lasted until the summer. So it sounds like he started in the fall, got into the summer, and, and, and then he said, sales were too far below even my most conservative projections. 
to continue as I was. I tried to salvage my dream. I moved further west to a new town, Brockville, downsized and rebranded. So his solution to a failing new business was to essentially turn it into a new business again and start from scratch again. And he says, even with bootstrapping, thinking creatively and stretching dimes into dollars, my fortunes didn't improve. Um, so there's a misuse here of the word bootstrapping. Um, bootstrapping is when you have a profitable venture and you take the profits and use those profits to uh, reinvest in further capital or operating capital needs to grow the business. Um, he didn't have profits, so he cannot be bootstrapping because he had no profits, right? It's very clear that he, he was losing money, right? And so let me uh, see if the story continues below. It does. Okay. Some people suspect I didn't give my business enough time. But without enough revenue, there's only so far to take it. Looking back on my 15 months of store ownership, if I had the means to invest a further $50,000, I might have kept afloat personally and professionally, but that money would be a sunk cost and I didn't have access to it. So he's, he's kind of realized in a roundabout way what I just said. If he had the other $50,000, he would have been able to pay his bills and keep the store open, but he would just be financing losses like the money would just be frittered away. Some business owners do. They dip into savings, borrow or liquidate enough assets to make this happen. I don't begrudge them this, but I take umbrage with it not being discussed as openly as it should be. Um, you begrudging them? Like, take pity on them. Like, somebody who is in business and they're not making money um, and they have the ability to forestall the closure of this liability business. Um, you know, we should not be, you know, congratulating them or or saying that they're better off or whatnot. They're they're just they're further damaging themselves by carrying on. Let me continue with the article. It says one consequence I endured was blaming myself for not being as successful as my peers to a degree that was unproductive and frankly unkind. I had drank enough entrepreneurial Kool-Aid to believe that we were all in the same boat. So my failures meant I had messed up in ways that other people hadn't. Over time, I've found this to be overly harsh and ignorant that some entrepreneurs benefiting quietly from other factors. They don't benefit from these factors. Having all of these extra resources uh, just gives you more options. It doesn't make you more profitable or make you a better business owner. Uh, being a profitable, uh, successful business owner has to do with understanding your numbers, understanding your costs, understanding what sales you need to get, and figuring out if you're going to be able to do it or not. Again, startups are hard. That's why 90% of them fail. They can't get the customers. That's um, why it makes more sense to buy a business. Privileged entrepreneurs reflected this to me in conversations, frequently mindless of the gulf between us. They would suggest I improve my fortunes by trying a more positive attitude or visualizing a brighter future. Other suggestions included applying for more credit facilities and once being asked if I had a rich uncle I could hit up. So again, in my mind, he's not actually talking about real business people. He's talking about other people that are enjoying this small biz lifestyle, this entrepreneur lifestyle, people that want to go and play at being business owners. And I mean, if you just go to like a chamber of commerce uh, luncheon or something like that, you're gonna meet people that fit into this category where, you know, the, 
they, they've got a business, they work at full time, but they don't make any money. And, and I'm going to I'm going to show you in just a minute when we get to the end of the article here um, how Rob could have known before he even started uh, what his likely out outcomes would have been. So he says, when I tried to bring up challenges, it wasn't any better. Those at entrepreneurship's bottom rung, like myself, were more open to them, but my comparatively well-heeled peers didn't want to engage in these conversations, not to offer advice or even to acknowledge the existence of challenges. This is little more than delusion, and not everybody can afford to be delusional. Instead, I had to do crisis control on my own in real time. Congratulations. Reality hit home for Rob, and he had to actually deal with his situation, which meant closing this business. You know, one of my... One of my uh, favorite quotes is from author Ayn Rand, who wrote uh, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. And her quote goes something like this. She said, you can ignore reality, but you can't ignore the consequences of ignoring reality, right? So you can pretend that a business doesn't make money by continuing to shovel more cash into it, but eventually the consequences of ignoring the reality of a money losing business are going to catch up to you in some way. And this is when it caught up to, uh, to the author of the article here. If I had better understood the inequalities of entrepreneurship. So again, like there's a certain social justice warrior bent to this article where uh, I think they're trying to plant the seed that somehow entrepreneurship and business ownership is only for people that are already wealthy, right? And and I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to, to kind of create this dividing point where they're saying, hey, if you come from meager means and you don't have a lot of money in the bank, that you should just not even try this. You should give up because you're disadvantaged. You know, the privileged people have all the advantages and you just can't succeed because you don't have a paid off mortgage or or access to investment funds or something like that. Um, quite frankly, it's kind of like an invitation to a pity party. Like, oh, oh, I'm a victim. I can't do anything. Bull. I'm going to give you some stories here in a second. He says, um, I would have been more prepared for the challenges I faced and less anxious and less stuck in my head. Today, a decade later, I don't believe we're much further along in discussing these realities. It's because he doesn't follow my YouTube channel. Uh, too much of the focus is on cultivating an entrepreneurial mindset rather than focusing on the challenges and inequalities that can shape the experience of business owners and affect their success. Do you really think that somebody planning a business should be sitting around focused on potential or perceived inequalities between themselves and others? This doesn't make sense at all. Like if you're planning a business, you need to be thinking about what the revenues and expenses and costs are going to be and whether or not you're going to be able to make money in the business. The, the success or failure is in the business and securing the customers. It's not about all these other factors. All these other factors are going to have a huge impact on how you get into business, right? That's different from what he's talking about. He's, he actually believes that the success or failure of a business is related to these quote unquote privilege factors that he's identifying. Let me continue with the article here. It says, ultimately that day a decade ago where I worried about my business's future wasn't for my not. By March, 2015, I was piecing together a new life my business closed, the storefront's keys had been handed over, the components sold off piece by piece. Talking more openly about how, how entrepreneurship isn't a totally equal playing field and instead one where certain privileges make the difference between a business thriving or flopping like mine should be table stakes. So listen, he closed, he faced the reality of a situation and 
the big thing I want to point out about this paragraph is that even if your business fails, life moves on. Uh, I've known many people who've gone through bad times. When I had my business brokerage office opened, one of the standard questions in my intake survey for business owners that wanted to sell their business was, have you ever declared personal or business bankruptcy? Almost a third of the business owners that had successful, profitable businesses checked yes. Think about that. At some point earlier in their life, they personally or had a went bankrupt or had a business bankruptcy. Rob is in the category, right? He could be learning from his experience and trying to figure out what did I do wrong? How did I make a mistake? How did I fool myself with my business plan, right? What went wrong and how can I change and alter my plan to be more successful next time? Instead, what he's done is he's found reasons or excuses why he never had a chance in the first place, which, you know, I don't understand. I don't understand, but maybe it's a generational thing. I, mean, I think the guy is probably 10 or 15 years younger than me. Um, let me keep reading. Um, challenges don't scare entrepreneurs away from taking the plunge once they make up their mind. I've played out scenarios in my mind for 10 years only to realize nothing would have kept me from taking my moonshot. That's why being more open about the inequalities present the so-called great present and the so-called great equalizer won't do great harm. Instead, had I understood them before going in, I would have taken my failures less personally. Instead of believing that everyone launched from the same starting line, I was simply abnormal or unlucky. Okay. So, is he really you know, a victim of the unknown. Let's go back to that government statistic website. So on here, we know that fully half the businesses in this category that he's chosen do under $480,000 of revenue a year. Half of them, okay? In fact, three quarters of them do under 1.3 million in revenue per year. That's revenue, okay? So uh, I'm guessing his business was in the bottom quartile, but let's let's just go down here. So if we scroll down, there is labor and commissions as an overhead expense. And we can see here that 13.9% uh, is the labor cost for bottom quartile businesses and 15.6% is the labor cost for middle, uh, lower middle labor businesses. So if I look at the bottom rung there, let me clear my calculator. So 170,000 in revenue is at the bottom of the lower middle range, okay? And then if I say labor and expenses is 15.6%, uh, and then if we look at the profit, the profit is 5.8. So if I add those two together, because I want to get the total of the labor and the profit, because I want to make the assumption here that in this really small, these really small businesses, there's one person working. The shop owner is the only employee. They, they're paying themselves a salary and taking the profit. Okay, because I just want to show like what is the outside possibility here in this in this category. So if I add them together, fifteen point six plus five point eight, I'm going to get twenty one point four. So I'm going to multiply this by point two one four. Thirty six thousand dollars, right? So if he was basically at the top of the bottom quartile at the bottom of the lower middle quartile 
um, he would have put $36,000 in his pocket. Like even 10 years ago, that wasn't a very good income, right? We don't know what his business plan is, how much he expected to sell. Um, let's then consider what if he was at the $480,000 of, uh, of revenue. So again, uh, I'm going to clear this out and I'm going to put $480,000. Now, I don't think that you could um, take all of the wages at that sales level. You probably need to have some employees in there, which is why this this exercise doesn't hold as much water at the four hundred eighty thousand dollar level. But if I even if I multiply this by my twenty one point four times point two one four, it's only one hundred and two thousand. So if you needed a couple of part timers to come and do some work, then you know the take home of that person is going to be less than one hundred thousand dollars a year, right? So. So, so let's just kind of think about this for a second. He was working retail and I don't know what he was earning. Maybe he was earning uh, $10 or $12 an hour at the time. So maybe his earnings over the course of the year were 24, 25 grand. And, and he thought that doing this was going to earn him more money. What these numbers show from these, from this is from a website from Statistics Canada. This is publicly available information. I mean, he could have looked this up and figured out just what kind of opportunities existed. Like what, well, on the outset was this opportunity. Now, in this cost setup here, you know, interest in bank charges, okay, that's just like, you know, credit card fees and bank fees and stuff like that. Um, if he then took his financing costs out of this, $102,000 for repaying the loan that he took because he's got to cover the financing costs. Again, it's another notch lower. So the, the surprise and shock shouldn't be there. The, the information is out there to do the research, to figure out, you know, if everything works according to plan and my business performs like most of the other ones out there, what realistically could my outcome be? It's not rosy. Like, it's just not rosy. Uh, a lot of the times when I talk with uh, business owners uh, who are having trouble um, I, or people that are, you know, thinking about starting a business, uh, one of the things I'll challenge them to do is reach out to other businesses in that category and ask them if they're interested in selling. Just to see, number one, if any of them jump at the opportunity. And number two, maybe you can get some of your hands on some financial information to see just how well they're doing, right? So... Let's see how he finishes the article here. Um, I think it will be a hard sell, not that the topic is invalid, but because some people will consider it too negative or for others, it will destroy myths about being self-made. On the other hand, these discussions would be an almost radical act according, uh, going against prevailing attitudes. I can't think of something more fitting for entrepreneurs to do. So let me stop sharing the screen here. So let's, let's talk about this. He got all hyped up on hopium, listening to some high energy online people who talk about entrepreneurship and all the positives and all the successes without really having an understanding of what the downsides would be and what the risks would be in starting a business from scratch. He also created projections and a cash flow plan that was rosy enough to get a bank to agree to make him a loan, right? And so my question would then be, 
was the cash flow forecast realistic or not? Or was it created with a view of trying to qualify for the loan? Um, I, I teach cash flow forecasting, right? And so if you go to BizPlan School, B-I-Z, BizPlanSchool.com, you can see my cash flow forecasting program. And in the program, and even in the sales video, I think I, I actually mention one of the traps that entrepreneurs can fall into is the idea of creating a cash flow forecast that sells the banker. And this is a trap because what will happen is your attitude is such that you believe that you can't fail. You will then start to massage the cash flow forecast so that the numbers work out to make it look like it's going to be successful. Instead of doing with the cash flow forecast what you really should be doing, which is trying to create the most realistic set of circumstances that you can to see if the business would realistically succeed or not. So, you know, from this data that we have here showing that 50% of the businesses in this category do less than half a million dollars of revenue, right? Just from that alone, you would have to be operating perfectly with respect to your peers to earn an income that you could probably get through developing your skills and getting a job someplace. So why would you take the risks of starting the business if the possible returns didn't match the risks, right? You, you don't want to get yourself into a position where you've risked all this stuff just to have a mediocre outcome if everything works out perfectly. It's literally unlimited downside while capping your upside. Like that doesn't make sense at all. And, and, and that's what the, the author of this uh, story is talking to us about. And now that it hasn't worked for him, he wants to talk about how um, he didn't have the same advantages as other people. It's excuses. It reminds me of every time I see someone in the news who's like, uh, you know, a, a poverty advocate and they talk about raising the minimum wage. They just raise the minimum wage here, 50 or 75 cents. And it's 15, 15 an hour here. Um, and so now there's a bunch of articles in the newspaper about how 1550 isn't a livable wage. Well, duh, why would the minimum wage be a livable wage? Why do we expect somebody with zero experience taking their first job to suddenly be able to earn enough income from that job to support a family and a household, right? Because if you read what a livable wage is, they've got all kinds of stuff thrown in there. Basically that, you know, two people on this wage are supposed to be able to pay for an apartment and raise kids and all that kind of stuff. It's crazy. Minimum wage is for first jobs with people that have no experience, uh, limited skills, can't really contribute a whole lot to an organization, and their labor is worth so little, the government has to make a rule about how much you need to pay them, right? Anyone who wants to raise a family or own a home should really be a little more ambitious and should develop their skills so they can sell their time for more money in the marketplace, right? Now, I have worked with many entrepreneurs over the course of time who did not have the capital to buy a business, what I suggest people do. You know, I say, buy a business. Don't, don't start one, that's risky. Um, I've worked with people who have had to start businesses because they didn't have the money to buy one. And they really needed to do what he described, um, he, the B word, bootstrap. They really needed to bootstrap. They said, I need to make money. I need to make money right now because I need money to live on and I need to earn enough money that I can... Uh, accumulate capital so I can further make investments that are going to help me grow, et cetera, in business. So one such entrepreneur, for example, was a newcomer to Canada and uh, he talked with me. He was talking with some people at the economic development office. He was talking with a bunch of people. He said, I need to make money. I need to make money 
from scratch on the very first sale I make, and I don't have a lot of money to invest. So what did he do? Well, he made up some flyers and he started catering office meetings, right? And where did he cater them from? His kitchen. And so every time someone placed an order, he would make money on that order. He hustled. He got out there. He met people. He promoted himself. He sold, sold, sold. Every time his phone rang, he would fill like a platter of sandwiches. He would go to the office. He would deliver them. He would make money every time. He started to accumulate money. He started to save up. Eventually, he was able to get a small restaurant. He was able to take over the lease on a restaurant that went out of business, right? So he capitalized on the investments the prior owner made that, that uh, they failed at. But it allowed him to acquire the capital that was created in that rented location. You know, the, the plumbing, the electrical, the vent hoods, all that stuff was still there. He was able to sign a lease and then he was able to qualify for some lease financing on some other equipment. And he actually uh, managed to grow from doing that little catering business from his kitchen into an actual retail location, right? Which simply brought a new level of need for his hustle. Because now he needed to hustle up enough customers. He didn't have the capital to um, rest on his laurels and wait for customers to show up. The whole, I just need enough time and I'll reach break even. No, this guy couldn't afford to do that. He had to go get customers. So what did he do? He would go visit local businesses. He would hand out lunch special coupons that would also have a special for Friday and Saturday night. He's like, oh, well, if you don't want to come to my place for lunch here, use this coupon on Friday night call up, make a takeout order, etc. And it was hustle, 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 hustle. That guy made money from the beginning of his business. He never had a negative point. He made money all the time. He had to make money. And he understood that every order he had, he had to make it profitable. And he only made capital investments when he could afford to make them from the capital he accumulated, right? He did do some leasing. I guess that's an exception. But I just want to highlight the story. Because I meet other people who get hopped up on this entrepreneurial Kool-Aid stuff, as, as the author uh, points out, and they just, they fall in love with the idea of being a business owner. And that's what they want to do. They just want to be a business owner. They just think everything's going to work out. And to the point of the article, I meet people who get into businesses that never, ever, ever make money, but the person happens to be married to a doctor or a lawyer or something like that, and they can afford to play entrepreneur. If you ever go look at buying a business and you meet someone uh, and you are not certain how it is that they seem to be functioning, like if the numbers don't seem to add up, one of the questions you can ask is, what does your spouse do for a living? It can be insightful because if the spouse is like a stay-at-home parent, it means that the business is probably making money. If the spouse has a high income salary, it means that they can afford to play entrepreneur and you have to be even more careful with your analysis and due diligence. Anyway, thank you for sending in the video. Thanks for all of you who send in stuff. Uh, there is a particular book that I have written, uh, came out a little while ago. I'm going to put the audiobook cover up here on the screen. It's called Smarter Than a Startup and it's available on Amazon. It's only a few bucks. And Smarter Than a Startup basically was written for people like the author of this article to show them uh, a better way to get into business with their idea. Um, and if he had written, and this book wasn't around back then, but if he had read this book, uh, he probably wouldn't have opened the store, right? 
and so if you know anyone who's flirting with this kind of idea that they want to do something like this, uh, recommend that book to them. It's an audiobook and Kindle. It's just a short read. Um, but it could potentially save them from making a disastrous mistake. And, you know, if you encounter this idea that somehow, you know, people that get into business, if they have greater assets, have a greater opportunity or a greater uh, chance at success, you know, I would say that people with greater resources are probably going to have easier avenues to get into business and to start businesses. And they can certainly afford to pay for more mistakes. But it doesn't really change how good an operator you are. Understanding how you make money in a business and what you need to do day to day to make it work. Um, I think anyone can learn those skills. And you can even learn them being employed somewhere. And in the case of the article, you know, there's so much about home decor that I don't think he would have understood from working in a home decor store. You know, there's the purchasing, there's the costs, there's the understanding of the seasonality, there's just the, the capital to invest in the supply chain, like in orders coming in from like, you know, Pier 1 Imports would be bringing stuff in from China. I doubt that he was able to bring in container loads of stuff from China. He was buying from some kind of wholesaler, which would have affected his margins, right? So all kinds of things that would be different from the retailers he worked for versus the boutique that he opened. Anyway, um, thanks everyone. Keep them coming. And I'd love to get your opinion on what you think. Comment down below and we'll see you next time. Cheers. So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? Easy, go over to my blog site, davidcbarnett.com, where you can learn more about me and how I work with my clients. You can learn more about my books and courses that I've prepared for you. You can find out how to subscribe to my email list, the YouTube playlists, and more. There's literally hundreds of hours of content there, all for free, and I'd love for you to be my guest. Special thanks go to Mark Willis at Lake Growth Financial, today's video sponsor. Mark helps people better manage their personal and business finances through the bank on yourself insurance strategy. This is something I've done personally and I've seen others use it successfully for years. Go to newbankingsolution.com to find all the interviews I've done with Mark and learn more about the advantages of these programs. While there, sign up for a free consultation to learn what this solution might look like for you.